We played through seven dungeons, learned eight magic spells, two sword skills, and collected a bevy of useful items which allowed Link to claim the Triforce of Courage and awaken the ancient sleeping princess Zelda. Today on Legendary Adventures Podcast, we're going to put a bow on the experience and discuss the world design and legacy of Zelda 2. Zelda 2 expands the lore and the setting of the series quite a bit. The world itself, as with the entire game, is separated into an overworld viewed from an overhead perspective, and action scenes and towns which are viewed from the 2D side-scrolling perspective. The overworld presents Hyrule on a much larger scale than what's seen in the original game. It's viewed from a more zoomed-out perspective, and while it's not immediately clear from just looking at the map, the game as a whole is built on a grid of squares, and movement happens between those squares. Towns, palaces, and certain action scenes like caves are presented as icons on the map, which are then entered by touching them. Enemies and fairies are also represented by icons on the map. There are these small slime monsters or bots that represent the weak encounters, and then there are large humanoid monsters that represent strong encounters. Fairies appear on the map as fairies. In Zelda 2, Hyrule is separated between four major areas on two continents. The first of the four areas is the starting area, and it's on the first continent. It includes the North Castle, Parappa Desert, and the towns of Raru and Ruto. The second area is through the caves south of Ruto. The jump spell and candle are required to reach it. The second area includes Maduro Swamp, Soraya Town, the harbor town of Mido, Death Mountain, and the Island Palace. The third area is on the second continent and is reachable only by raft. It includes the towns of Niburu and Darunia, Maze Island, and the Ocean Palace. The fourth area is blocked by the River Devil, which is defeated only by the flute. It includes the destroyed towns of Kasuto, the rebuilt town of Kasuto, the Hidden Palace, the Valley of Death, and the Great Palace. Each of these four areas of Hyrule are hard-locked, meaning players cannot venture into them until they acquire the proper item. The tighter structure of the world also means that the dungeons have a set order which can't really be varied. Items from each dungeon are required to reach the next dungeon in sequence. Medoro Palace is particularly crucial. It can't be completed without acquiring the Handy Glove, and later dungeons also require use of the Handy Glove. Yes, truly determined players can venture into each dungeon, acquire the item, and then leave in an effort to vary the dungeon order, but that really isn't a practical way to play. Players will ultimately have to return, defeat the boss, place the crystal to unlock the Great Palace. This more structured approach to exploration means that the world is continually expanding for most of the playtime. There's still some room to explore, there are secrets to find in each area, but the world is open to the player in smaller chunks at a time. The game generally does a good job with its hints to help guide the player through the quest, although sometimes it does get a little too obscure. For example, consider meeting with Bagu to get a note to cross the river in Soraya. The supposed hint to his location is difficult to find, and once we do get it, it's entirely unclear. A bot simply says his master is in the woods. Also unclear is how players were intended to find the hidden town of Kasuto without a walkthrough. Players need to use the hammer as an axe. 
This ability is mentioned in the manual, but there's no hint of it in the game, and this is literally the only place where it's required. I frankly had forgotten about the mention in the manual because I didn't need to read the manual except at the very beginning of the game. Players also didn't need to clear trees to meet Bagu in the woods, but they do need to clear trees to access the hidden Kasuto. It's a strange inconsistency that leads to frustratingly obscure design. Of Zelda II's eight towns, each is presented from a side-scrolling 2D perspective. They are also split between multiple screens. There is an effort by the developer to make each town feel unique in some way. They all have different color schemes, quests, and layouts. Soraya, for instance, has the river bridge, while Mido has the church, Nibiru has its water fountains. I'll also say that while I wasn't a big fan of the Ganon Spies mechanics, it did help town stand out in some way, and it was a good storytelling element. Back out on the world map, the zoomed out view and the inclusion of two continents goes a long way to making Zelda II feel like a much bigger, more realized world than the one in the original Legend of Zelda. The game further emphasizes this by including a representation of the original game's map on the southern end of Death Mountain. We can see Spectacle Rock represented, now as a rock and a cave side by side. There's the cemetery to the southeast of it, there are two forests, two lakes are also represented. It's a fun little easter egg for players of the first game, but it also builds out Hyrule. I said the first game lacked a sense of place. It didn't feel like a kingdom where people lived and worked. Here Zelda II changes the context of it, by making the original game world just a small region of a much larger kingdom. Overall, I would say that I like the world of Zelda 2, but I don't necessarily like exploring it. That's partially because of the semi-random battles that are included in the game, but also the difficulty. Playing the special edition included with the Nintendo Switch NES Online allowed me to largely ignore these battles or exit them as quickly as possible, but the constant interruptions to the flow of exploring are annoying. Today there are a few players who would say that Zelda 2 is their favorite entry in the series. There are a significant number of people who just don't like it at all. Prior to this playthrough, I was one of them. However, playing through the special edition, I found a lot to like. There's still plenty I don't like. As I mentioned, the game design is sometimes too obscure. And even with the difficulty reduced, I still found some areas frustratingly difficult. But I had a lot of fun with the first three dungeons. I was much more mixed on the final four. For some reason I can't quite put my finger on, I still have got some enjoyment out of the Ocean Palace, even though I needed a walkthrough to help me find the boss. There was also a large number of repeated rooms in that dungeon. I generally dislike the Maze Palace and the Hidden Palace, the Hidden Palace especially. That false floor goes a long way to throwing me off, but also just reaching that boss is difficult and I'm not sure I would have figured out how to do so without a walkthrough. The Great Palace is also a mixed bag. It's got its false floors, its difficult enemies, but I liked the look of it, and some of its set pieces are nice. However, if I were playing this game on its original difficulty, without access to a rewind feature, I would likely have rejected all of these last four dungeons as being entirely too punishing. On the whole, I think I'd say Zelda 2 is probably my least favorite of the mainline Zelda games, but I do have a new appreciation of it. So how does Zelda 2 continue the Zelda formula established in the first game? Well, that's actually hard to say. There are elements that are here. This is still an action-adventure game where players must venture through a variety of dungeons to complete the main quest. 
and it could be argued that Zelda 2 is an open-world title. After all, it has an interconnected world map that's presented in one location. But I could see arguments also against it being open-world. The map's not to scale, and after all, its towns and its caves and other locations are just icons that shift the perspective of play to a 2D perspective once they are touched, and those shifting perspectives could be seen as too much of a break to really consider it as being open-world as well. In fact, these side-scrolling segments are really the core of Zelda 2, while the overworld's more of a bit of added spice. So again, I could see the argument that this is not open-world, but on the flip side, I do think the interconnected nature of the world and the elements of exploration could be arguments in favor of it being open-world. Ultimately, I'll let you decide what you think. Turning to the dungeons, these are again experienced through that 2D side-scrolling gameplay. Dungeons contain no map or compass to guide the player. It's up to the player entirely to explore and to keep the layout of dungeons in their heads, or to break out the notebook and pen and map it out themselves the old-fashioned way. Unlike the first game, the goal of the dungeon is not to collect a MacGuffin, but to instead place one. It seems like splitting hairs, but most other games have links seeking and acquiring items within dungeons and not placing them there. Each dungeon also contains a tool or dungeon item for Link to acquire, just like in the original game, and just like in the games that will follow. Heart containers are not granted for defeating a boss. Instead, players are leveled up after placing a crystal. It grants a similar effect to the heart container, but it's distinct enough to stand on its own outside of the established formula. In addition to a system of experience points and levels, Zelda 2 also does away with many of the basic gameplay elements from the original game. One of those ways it stands apart from the original game is by doing away with the economy. There's not a single rupee or shop to be found. Link's health is also represented by a bar or a meter instead of hearts. There's no life hearts or even any other health restoring pickup. Players can only heal inside towns by visiting the healer or by casting the life spell. The game also stands apart through its use of an arcade-style limited life system. We've discussed the how and the why these changes came about, but just as a quick recap, the initial prototype wasn't built with Zelda in mind. That theming came later. There's also a majorly different team working behind the scenes. However, it can be said that while a more clear Zelda formula can be seen looking across over a dozen games over more than 30 years of history, it wasn't really clear when this game was made. There seems to be an effort to incorporate ideas from the original game, but they're generally not what we would consider the hallmarks of the series. When Link's health is full, he can still shoot a sword beam, for instance, for a raged attack against enemies. The collection of items to solve puzzles and open new areas remains a core mechanic, and among those items, there's a candle to light up dark areas. In terms of function, it's different from the original game, but they still both have candles in them. Both games also include a raft and a flute, and in both games the flute is used to reveal a dungeon, while the raft allows players to reach an otherwise inaccessible area. There are enemies such as wizrobes that appear here which behave much in the same way as they did in the original despite the change in perspective. There's also a number of helpful residents of Hyrule who offer sometimes cryptic hints. Many of them are old men and women just as they were in the first game. There are elements here that will remind players of the first game, but it's also very clear that this is a very different experience on the whole. While Zelda 2 is different, and it's not exactly beloved today, it's hard to ignore its lasting legacy. 
In his NES Works series on YouTube, Jeremy Parrish notes that Zelda II influenced other games on the NES, like Rambo and Castlevania II Simon's Quest and Blaster Master. Even today we can spot games that have at least a hint of Zelda II in them, such as Shovel Knight and Shantae in The Pirate's Curse. Zelda II also influenced other games within the Zelda series itself. It's clear that while Shigeru Miyamoto called Zelda II sort of a failure, he and the Zelda team never forgot the game. The next game in the series, A Link to the Past, notably returns to the top-down style presented in the original game. But in an interview following A Link to the Past release and translated on Glitterberry.com, Miyamoto said of the next game in the series, As for the next Zelda, if we go in order, it will probably be Super Nintendo Adventure of Link. That said, A Link to the Past does draw many elements from Zelda 2. It just presents them in a style that's more reminiscent of the original game. There's a village, there's magic spells governed by a magic meter, it features a number of pre-dungeon quests that wouldn't be out of place in Zelda 2, and Zelda 2 and the games that followed it would still leave room for exploration, but their quests become decidedly more structured. Famously, Zelda 2 was on the developers' minds at the start of development of Ocarina of Time. It carried over to a variety of cosmetic elements. You'll see Zelda 2 names all over that game, but it also impacted the combat of Ocarina of Time and all the 3D Zelda games that follow it. They all owe a debt to Zelda 2. We'll discuss that in more detail when we get to those games. The lore and storytelling of The Legend of Zelda is also making big steps in taking on a recognizable shape here. The Triforce is now comprised of three pieces and will continue to be three pieces for the rest of the series. Ideas like Triforce symbols appearing on the back of hands of some individuals, like Link, Zelda, and Ganon, were introduced here and will continue to be an element moving forward. The game also firmly establishes that the death of Ganon is not permanent and that there is more than one Zelda. Now the concept of there being more than one Link does not firmly appear here, but it's been implied in the manuals of both this game and the previous, where players are told to create their Link. Up next, it's Season 3 of Legendary Adventures. I'm going to dive into the history of The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. If you're interested in following along, please subscribe and please consider sharing this podcast with another Zelda fan. You can play A Link to the Past on Nintendo Switch Super NES Online with a subscription. I'm Paul Riley. Thanks for listening.